Welcome to Dragon Talk, the official Dungeons and Dragons podcast. I'm Greg Tito, and I'm joined by Trevor Kidd. Hey, Trevor. Woo, hey, Tito. I came in today just to do this and get you sick. Hey, man, whatever. I, you're, you're my cube mate. I'm with you. I, I got you. Everybody else listening to this, we're going to try to infect you through, through the airwaves. Yeah, it's never been tested before, but now yeah. for the first time, we're going to put out sickness throughout the waves. Yeah, Tito's really trying, I can tell. He's like, he's like trying to like... Like, like spew all that sickness through the airwaves here. I've seen like a handful of people so far in the office and they've all been like, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> no. What's Mike, I guess not. I guess I look pretty terrible. Great. You looked fine. And then like I came in and you were just like, like, like literally you're just sitting there and you were kind of like shut off. It's like he's conserving all of his energy for this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> I'm taking like a little bit of coffee. So I got some energy going on and uh, yeah, we're going to talk to some amazing people. Yeah. This is a pretty, pretty fun podcast we're about to have. So. Planescape. Torment. There we go. Enhanced edition. I was waiting for Tito. <laughs> is coming soon. Like he knows I know this, but I'm going to make him say it. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's. Uh, I, I'm excited that the announcement. I know some people were like, oh, look, it's going to Planescape's coming back to table up. No, no. Well, maybe. Maybe one day. Maybe. But here, we're, we're here to talk about Planescape Torment, the enhanced edition. Exactly. With uh, uh, the writer of the original, uh, well, and, you know, this one, Chris Avalone. Yep. As well as Philip Daigle from Beamdog. Yep, yep. It's, this should be uh, super fun because those are both guys, they, they talk well and they know a lot. So I'm just going to be like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what you say, yeah. And should we tell them that we actually recorded this, like, months ago? <laughs> We had yes. this. We had this interview in the can. Yes. Everything was planned. We were good producers and had everything ready for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we lost it. We lost the audio. We lost the audio. The audio was no more because it was so far in advance. Yeah, We've yeah. never done that before. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we're doing other, it again. There's other things we can talk about now that we're a little bit closer to it anyway. Exactly. So, that yeah. was the idea. That was. It was. It would be better to record it anyway. So. Yeah. So you're hearing this on Thursday. We actually recorded it the Monday. Just a few days before this Thursday, which, That's right. which we've been trying not to do. Tito's been ha, have been having us on a great schedule where we're like, oh look, we're like a month ahead of time. This is awesome. Exactly. Um, but and that's what, that's mostly because uh, uh, Mr. Ryan Marth. Can I talk about this? Yeah, yeah he's having a baby very oh. soon, any day now. Another a, baby. A second baby. I'm gonna have to start talking to you about about, about your other kid now, boy or girl. Oh wow, he's got he's got the I shouldn't say the trifecta because he's only got two, two kids, right? <laughs> he's got the whatever whatever the the two pers- the, the two thing is of a trifecta. Don't make me laugh anymore because I'll the, just cough. The duofecta. <laughs> the duofecta. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, so that's gonna be exciting, and we've got like a bunch of uh, uh, episodes ready to go, uh, so that he doesn't have to come in right when the baby is Yay. brand new. But we're gonna give you like a month, and then we're gonna like put you back in the word mines. After a month, he's gonna be like, "Can I please get out of the house <laughs> and come record this podcast with you?" I know the deal. Uh, so yeah, uh, yawning tales from the yawning portal is out now in stores. Yeah. Uh, April fourth, it is out everywhere. Yes, it's uh, you can buy it on the Amazons. You can buy it on uh, uh, any most bookstores, Barnes and Noble, things like that. Everywhere. In addition to your friendly local game store, and I would say it probably makes more sense to buy it at the game store. Honestly. Yeah, I mean, do what do what suits you, but you know, you gotta gotta support yeah. those game stores. Exactly. They, uh, they they liked your business, and they uh, provide a nice, uh, happy home for yeah. you to play some games. So. Unless they're jerks, then in that case, don't buy their stuff. Exactly. But you know how that is. Um, but yeah, Yawning Portal, I'm pretty excited. I actually want to hear what everybody's favorites are. Uh, as, as I have noted previously, I've never played uh, uh, Tomb of Horrors. Okay. So... Uh, I'm I'm not I'm I'm a, I'm a fake D and D boy. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I did it for the first time. Actually, I ran it uh, uh, at PAX East. Nice. Uh, and I was like, oh, this is my first actual connection with this, and it was super fun. Yeah. So, how uh, many people did you kill? 
uh, at least two outright. Yeah. And I think one player, I might have said this on the podcast already, but he said, uh, yeah, that's the first time I've ever been disintegrated or like destroyed. <laughs> it's like, uh, my players, have, you know, my uh, PCs have died a couple of times, but uh, uh, never just full out destroyed. Full out. My entire body's gone. Yeah. Like, yes. And uh, that's what two Mahors can bring to the table. Yeah. So if that's your bag, play that one. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely a lot of other adventures in uh, uh, Yawning Portal, which are all Pretty awesome and different and classic, though, so don't right. feel like you have to play that one. And some of them are uh, bite-sized adventures, so I know a lot of people, uh, you know, it's tough to get into the 256-page long adventures that we've been putting out uh, uh, every year. Uh, yeah. And this way you can get into uh, like a smaller bite-sized type thing. For sure. Yeah. And if you're looking for other smaller bite-sized stuff, go ahead and check out the uh, Dungeon Masters Guild. That's right. Because there's a whole bunch of content over there uh, submitted by different peeps. And if you're looking for something that, that like a lot of people have you know, reviewed, those float up to the top as well. Or you can go digging in and find some, some new gems. But uh, I would definitely check those out because there's a lot of smaller adventures. There's a lot of uh, adventures that tie into other things. So uh, please go check that stuff out. Or, you know, just go play more giant stuff. Because <laughs> giants, 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 giants. So many giants. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we're going to get uh, um, uh, a segment coming up pretty soon. Uh, I Actually, I don't know what it is. I should have looked that up ahead of time. It's a lore stage advice you should know. <laughs> this is what you get with Sick Tito. Yeah. He's like, and eh, we have another segment. Trust me, it'll be awesome. I've already recorded it. It's cool. Uh, I think I think it's actually a, a stage advice because I did some with Jeremy. Um, and uh, I know people are, I, it's just on Twitter today, people are chomping at the bit for more of those. Uh, so yes. uh, it will be one of those and it'll be wonderful. Yes. So let's listen to it now. Welcome to another edition of Sage Advice. I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Crawford. Hello, everyone. How's it going? Great. Today, we're going to talk about uh, Wild Shape. Uh, and in this uh, segment, we uh, delve into deep uh, intent as well as uh, rules on uh, how Jeremy would run it, perhaps in his game, as well as the official ruling on, on how we do it. But of course... Uh, dungeon Masters are free to ignore all of this. This is more of a guideline. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, and Wild Shape is something that we uh, I get a lot of questions on. Uh, and uh, specifically, just uh, uh, the other day, uh, Josh DV, uh, known as D&D Dad 505, uh, specifically asked about Druid Wild Shape. And Jeremy's like, yes, that's a good, that's a good topic to jump into. Absolutely. Uh, Wild Shape, it's a Druid class feature. It's the classic way that Druids... Uh, assume the form of some beast that they've seen before. And it does generate a fair amount of questions because you are giving up your normal shape to suddenly be a bear, a wolf, uh, or some other creature uh, that you've learned uh, how to turn into. And so people uh, have a variety of questions uh, that stem from how wild shape works. So I'll dive right in sure. and into some of the, 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 the things that come up most often. So right at the top, uh, and I'm, I'm actually, I have the, the Wild Shape class feature in front of me. My player's handbook is open. Right at the top, it lets you know your game statistics are, are replaced by the beast that you turn into. Now, that might sound like a pretty straightforward thing, but actually this generates questions. Well, mm -hmm. what do we mean by statistics? So what we mean here, it, it, it's, it's very straightforward. It means basically take the beast's stat block either from the back of the player's handbook or from the monster manual, right? and use that for your character. And that was one of the reasons you included those stat blocks in the player's handbook. Absolutely. Instead of the monster manual. Yeah, we, there are some of the beast stat blocks that appear in both books uh, because we wanted to make it easy, especially for druid players, 
uh, to have quick access to some of the beast forms that we expected druids to use most often. That creature appendix at the back of the monster manual I'm sorry, the Player's Handbook uh, also includes some of the creatures that uh, wizards and other spellcasters might have as familiars, uh, and also uh, uh, some of the more common undead like skeletons and zombies that some of the spells that players use uh, mm-hmm. could end up you know, raising up and having as minions. Uh, so, f- yeah, when it says use the statistics of the beast that you turn into, it means take that stat block and use that stat block. But there are some exceptions. You get to keep your own intelligence, wisdom, and charisma, so your mind and your personality aren't replaced. Right, your mental statistics. Yeah, you get you get to hang on to those. And you also hang on to your skill and saving throw proficiencies. So those things you've learned as a character, you don't forget them mm-hmm. uh, when, you, when you transfer over. But how uh, does that work? Sorry to interrupt you, but like, mm-hmm. how does that work with uh, uh, creatures that may not have hands? You say that they ha- are still dexterous, but they, they are... Well, so that, so that actually jumps to a different, a different part of the wild shape rule uh, where we specify that uh, your ability to speak or take any action that requires hands is limited to the capabilities of the beast form. So here it requires uh, some thought on the part of the player and the DM of mm-hmm. what is this beast physically capable of doing. Uh, if, if something I would normally do would require humanoid-style hands, and the beast that I've turned into lacks them, let's say I turn into a wolf, then I'm not going to be able to do it. Right. You know, like like writing a letter, for instance. You know, really really straightforward things like that, or very fine manipulation of a tool right. uh, that would require, you know, typically a thumb and, and, and human-like fingers. Uh, if so you, the- Right. If, if you turn into a creature that lacks any kind of uh, anatomy like that, well, then that's not something you can do uh, as a beast. I love the role-playingness of that, though, of, of, of a druid who may know how to pick locks or, 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 or do some kind of skill, turns into a uh, deer, for example, and still knows how to do it, but can't physically do it. <laughs> right. I, I think that there's, there's some fun role-playing that, that, that players can latch on to. So it's not necessarily a limitation. It's more of a, uh, a, a opportunity for storytelling, I think. Yeah, yeah because you're, there's a trade-off when you, when you transform because Wild Shape is not only, in some cases, used for just combat. Like, you know, the druid might turn into a bear because, you know, uh, the druid wants to maul somebody uh, in battle. But often Wild Shape is, is even more useful for different sorts of utility purposes. Uh, as, as you gain levels as a druid, you gain the ability to turn into animals that can fly, animals with swimming speeds, animals that can breathe underwater. So suddenly the druid can turn into a scout. Uh, the, you know, the druid can sneak into places by turning into uh, you know, a little mouse. Uh, there are all sorts of creative ways that wild shape can be used way beyond just, you know, I turn into a creature and bite somebody. Right. Uh, but, you know, instead I fly up into the air and scout out, you know, the, the hobgoblin fortress that we're going to sneak into and report back to my friends. And the hobgoblins would just say, oh, that's just a regular bird up there. Now watch out. They might be hungry and fire, a, you know, fire their crossbows at you to take you down and cook you for dinner. Uh, or if they know there's a druid or a shapeshifter, they're like, oh, they might. Yeah, know. they might be on heightened yeah. alert and be, and be suspicious of especially any beast that shows up that's not native to the region. Right. Uh, that's, that's also something a druid should keep in mind is as they, as they transform. If they're trying to blend in, 
you know, and they're, they're in a snowy area and they suddenly turn into a tiger uh, that uh, is not the type that would normally be in that region, well, they, they might uh, raise some suspicions. Exactly. Uh, so, as I mentioned, you retain your personality, your knowledge and whatnot, but you are limited by the anatomy of the creature you transform into. Uh, you keep your saving throw proficiencies, you keep your skill proficiencies. Uh, now, there is a thing here where if you and the stat block that you've just assumed, this mm -hmm. creature, if you have the same proficiency, uh, you use whichever one is higher. So let's say you transform uh, into a creature that has proficiency in the stealth skill. And you also have proficiency in the stealth skill. But you take a look at the stat block and you're like, wait a second, this, this beast is actually better at stealth uh, than I am. Well, then use the beast's stealth, not yours. Got it. Uh, so you get to benefit uh, from that increase. Um, but it can go the other way. If you, if you uh, uh, change into a creature that has a higher stealth skill, you know. You, you mean lower? Uh, no, higher, because then you would assume whatever the creatures has. Or, yeah, that's what, yeah, the lower, right. So right, if, right. You, if you actually are sneakier than, than uh, uh, you, the character, are sneakier than the, the creature that you are, you can use yours. You get to use higher. your proficiency bonus. Right. But, in, but you do use the creature's dexterity modifier. Oh. This is where it gets tricky. Yeah. Um, use your proficiency bonus for, for anything where you're both proficient, but only if yours is higher but you use the physical stats of the beast. Now so I, I really want to like do like a stealthy druid who is silly and chooses the wrong animal every time. You're like, I'm a horse. You're <laughs> <laughs> like, well, your dexterity isn't quite that high. So right. you clip clop and, and uh, alert the orcs to your presence <laughs> in the dungeon. Well, plus I, I'm enjoying the, just the image in my head of the horse trying to sneak around. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's such a cartoon yeah, well, I, I don't see you there, Mr. Ed. You know, <laughs> just a horse. Leave yeah. me alone. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> uh, another thing uh, in Wild Shape is while you're in beast form, uh, you uh, can't cast spells. Uh, not until you reach 18th level as a druid. Mm. Uh, that's when you finally gain the ability to cast spells uh, while you're uh, in your Wild Shape. And why was that? Was that a significant change from previous editions? Because I, I feel like we used to be able to do that earlier in, in, in the level... Uh, where it falls in the level progression has changed uh, at different points, but it, it is traditional for a druid not to be able to do it. Mm. Now, this actually, even though the rule is, it just straight up says you can't cast spells. Yeah. And then later on it tells you, okay, now you can. Uh, this still actually causes some questions because in the rule, that, that bit that says you can't cast, pardon me, you can't cast spells is right next to the sentence that also says your ability to speak or do anything with your hands is limited by the anatomy of the creature. So the reason why this causes questions is sometimes people think that somehow these two concepts are intertwined. Mm. And so then they'll say, okay, what if I transform into, say, a gorilla? Are a gorilla's paws hand-like enough that I could cast a spell with just a somatic component. Right. And the answer is no, because the prohibition on casting spells is absolute. It doesn't matter what the creature's anatomy is. Right. Essentially, those two different parts of the rule are not meant to be interpreted together. It's simply, you can't cast spells, and also, 
Anything else you can do is limited by the anatomy of the creature. The anatomy of the creature has no bearing on your ability to cast spells or not. And, and, so, and then a person listening might wonder, well, why can't I cast spells uh, if it isn't anatomical? Part of it's game balance. Uh, we don't want druids to basically get to have their full array of spellcasting uh, I mean, druids are powerful spellcasters. That's actually where druid, a lot of the druids' power resides. Mm-hmm. We don't want a druid to be able to get basically a, a level of spellcasting comparable to a cleric or a wizard and also all the time get whatever additional benefits they're getting from a beast. Now, there's also an in-world idea behind it. We state in the wild shape rule that this transformation is magical. And our... Our DMs and players who are really into the story of D&D, like what's going on in the world, really can think of it this way, that the magic that a druid is often drawing on to cast their spells, they're now instead using to hold themselves in this beast form. Mm. Uh, it doesn't require concentration or anything you know, as onerous as that. But you can think of, you know, this magic that a druid can channel normally for spellcasting now instead is being channeled uh, to maintain uh, this beast form. Right, that makes sense. So, like, no, and and, then just going back to the anatomy thing, I'm sure you got questions about, like, parrots or or other kind of birds who can mimic uh, Mm -hmm. uh, a speech being like, oh, well, that's the same thing. Why can't they, you know. Do uh, a spell with a verbal component. Exactly. And the answer is they can't because Because they're still holding on to all that energy to just be a parrot. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, then people sometimes ask, well, if a druid wanders into, say, an anti-magic shell, do they get knocked out of beast form? The answer is yes, they do, mm. uh, because wild shape is magic. It's a magical effect. Um, it's not a spell, though, so you can't, you can't cast dispel magic on a druid and knock them out of their beast form. But any zone in which magic is not able to be uh, uh, there it's out. Exactly. Okay. That would that would knock knock the druid right out of wild shape. Mm, interesting. Um, now, even though druids can't cast spells while they're in uh, their wild shape, if they cast a spell before transforming and that spell requires concentration, they are allowed to keep concentrating on it while they're in beast form. Uh, so often druids will like to do things like cast call lightning. Then, which is you know concentration, and then transform into a uh, beast form, and have lightning strikes coming down while they're roaring around as some right. creature, and that's legal. That's totally oh yeah possible because yep. it's an effect that's ongoing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, as long as long as you cast the spell before you use wild shape and you're just concentrating on it, you're good. Now, what about uh, spells that uh, specifically buff the caster? Do those statistics transfer into wild shape? Or do they it, get replaced by the beast entry? So it really depends on uh, what the effect is. Uh, let's say let's say somebody cast a spell on you, um, and now I'm just making something up. You know, I'm, not, I'm not I'm not referring to an actual spell, but let's say someone casts a spell that says, "All right, you gain a plus two bonus to your armor class." Well, you are still the tar- you are still the target of that effect when you transform into a beast, mm-hmm. and so your armor class as a beast would now be too higher uh, because that spell was on you, even though that spell was cast on you before you transformed. Okay. So uh, basically, you're still, you're still the target of 
whatever spells or other effects that were directed at you before you transformed and changing into the form of a beast doesn't suddenly turn all those things off. Okay. That makes sense. And then I, I that is just kind of dovetails with our conversation on um, uh, bark skin too, because that was always seemed to me the most uh, best way to use that spell would be to cast bark skin on yourself and then wild shape, and then you would get the benefit of, of that. Yeah. Yeah. Unless, I mean, you know, bark skin basically creates a minimum for your armor class. You will definitely benefit from it while in beast form, unless the beast form has an armor class even higher than the one that bark skin provides. Got it. Um, I mean, in that case, bark skin, is, bark skin is still doing its job because its job is to make sure your, your armor class never falls below uh, a certain threshold. Right. Okay, cool. So there's another bit of wild shape that generates a lot of question, and that is we state that while in wild shape, you retain access to all the features from your class, your race, and any other source, and you can use them if the new form is capable of doing so. Mm. Oh, and, and when we say any other source, this also includes things like feats. Feats are a feature. Um, it's just a feature you're getting uh, from elsewhere in the game other than from your class or your race. Uh, you have access to all of these things as long as, again, you're physically capable of using them. Now, this is very open-ended. That's How, an if. That's a big yeah. if. And, and we were very purposeful in being this open-ended because there are so many different types of animals you could turn into, so many different feats, features, and, and racial traits if we got too specific, we would end up actually being far more restrictive than we intend to be. Mm. Uh, and so really the message I want to give out to our listeners is this uh, rule is written in a spirit of permissiveness. We actually want you to be able to use as many of your class features, racial traits, feats, etc., as possible. Uh, but within, within a... Within a sort of with the limit based more on narrative than on game balance of so when when you think about what is your person physically capable of doing you know if it's a feature that obviously requires the kind of manual dexterity that needs human like hands well you're not going to be able to do it uh in uh your beast form mm -hmm. uh if if a feature refers specifically refers to a specific kind of anatomy that you lack. Uh, like, let, I'm again, hypothetical. Let's say you have a racial trait that refers to your wings, like you're an Aarakocra, and you transform into something that lacks those wings. Well, you don't have access to that racial trait. Got it. Now, those, those aren't the combinations that people usually have questions about. They usually have questions about things like, one that comes up a lot is, I'm a dragonborn. Mm. I transform into a beast. Do I get to use my breath weapon? Well, Again, this rule is written in an attitude of permissiveness. And also, I'll just say as a DM, my attitude is also very permissive. The, the Dragonborn racial trait, all it says is you exhale uh, this breath weapon. We don't talk about it's you know, tied to a particular organ in your body. Right, there's uh, no physiological we, yeah, we explanation. Don't, we don't give an anatomical explanation for how a 
humanoid creature is launching lightning out of their mouth or, you know, whatever it is that the dragonborn Don't want to get into the weeds there. Is, yeah. is exhaling. All we say is you exhale this. And so basically any creature that has lungs uh, or the ability to exhale something, I, would you say? I, I would even be more permissive than that. That as long as, really? as, long as the creature has a mouth-like orifice, <laughs> I'm fine with the dragonborn using their breath weapon. So like any kind of worm type creature yeah. is fine? As, as long as they're, again, some... A roach some, or some kind of bug, you would be okay with them yeah, breathing fire? If, if See, the particular creature has a has something that you can imagine them exhaling this this from, whether yeah. you know it's fire or acid or, or lightning or whatever the particular dragonborn is one, exhaling. As a DM, I think I would rule the other way. I think I would rule you need to have some kind of the, the exhale being the, the the word that I would latch onto. Well, let's so so I I was no, sort of I was summarizing here here we're gonna. We're gonna, we're gonna right here on air. <laughs> we're gonna look. We're gonna flip to the dragonborn and take a look. All right. Yep. You can use your action to exhale destructive energy. So that's and so I think as a DM, if you wanted lungs to be uh, the defining feature there, yeah. As DM, that that's within your purview. Cool. I like the idea of it being you know open ended, so that it encourages creativity and imagination and. Arguing skills <laughs> in order to get it out there. I mean, that, that's that's core to D and D for me. Yeah, and the the great thing though for anyone listening to this to take away is we frame these rules uh, often in a permissive state of mind. Mm-hmm. Now there are absolutely points in the rules where we there are sort of very definitive limits where we say no, this isn't possible. Yeah, and usually that's because we want to protect. The overall play experience. We want to make sure everyone's having a good time. We want to make sure you know the game doesn't get bogged down. We want to make sure that things aren't so overpowered that it makes things boring. Yeah, because um, un- unfun for the right, other players. Exactly. Because yeah. that that's the other thing. People sometimes are afraid. Oh my God, my character seems too good. Well, to us, if your character seems awesome, that's awesome. <laughs> that's what we want. Yeah. It's only a concern. We've only we. We've only uh, we're only wandering into the realm of oops something's wrong here. If your character has become so powerful that no threat seems threatening, that uh, everyone else basically feels like your character is grandstanding, mm. you know, basically if like every every combat encounter or or social interaction or whatever the situation is, it's always the same character who says, I've got this, and everyone else is basically there just to clap. And, you know, oh, you're so wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> now, if a group enjoys that, you know, if a group likes playing the groupies to one other character, well, then that's also awesome. You know, that's, if it's set up that way. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. I mean, that's because so much is about the bliss of a particular group. What, you know, if if... If the group loves how something is playing out, then that part of the game is a total success. Uh, even you know that same thing in another group might not be so great, and then that's an opportunity for the DM to recalibrate. Let's you know let's modify things a little bit. Makes sense. So another class feature that comes up a lot, um, where people wonder, does my druid benefit from this while in beast form, is uh, the feature unarmored uh, defense, which the barbarian and the monk both have, and other classes and subclasses, not only that are officially in the game, but that we've also experimented with in Unearthed Arcana, have similar class features, where basically, you know, your armor class gets set uh, a particular way, usually when you meet certain criteria. In the case of the barbarian and the monk, it's when you're not wearing armor. Mm-hmm. So people wonder, does this work when I'm in beast form. 
And it then gets even trickier because some of the beasts that you turn into have natural armor. And people wonder, well, does that count as armor? Okay, so there's several things here for me to unpack. Yeah, there's a lot. So first, those rules refer to wearing armor. You don't wear natural armor. Uh, so anything in the game that refer that says when you're wearing armor, you know, this thing doesn't work, that never applies to natural armor. That's your skin or it's, you know, your scales, whatever whatever's providing uh, your natural armor. So you're not wearing it. It's you. Right. It's part of your body. <laughs> it's it's that part of your body. And, and that restriction against wearing armor is the, the artificialness of being a humanoid with soft skin having to wear strapped on armor and stuff like that. Exactly. That's where that comes from. Exactly. A natural beast doesn't have any of those, those limitations. Right. So, so right away, the natural armor is not shutting off uh, something like uh, unarmored defense. However, this goes back to the rule uh, that's, that's crucial in the game that different armor class calculations don't stack. You never use them all at the same time. And natural armor, as specified in the Dungeon Master's Guide, is an armor class calculation, just like when you use uh, artificial armor mm-hmm. um, or when you're using something like unarmored defense. And so really what you do, if let's say you're a monk who has multi-classed into druid and you, you suddenly transform into a beast, well, just take a look at the beast's armor class in its stat block. Take a look at your AC that you get from unmar- unarmored defense and use the higher of the two. Uh, because, again, you qualify to use your unarmored defense because you're not wearing armor. Right. Um, but I wouldn't recommend using your unarmored defense if you'll actually get a higher armor class from the beast. So you get to use whichever one is higher, but you don't somehow cobble them together to come up with some, you know, monstrously high right. armor class. Which I think is what the root of all these questions are, is like, do I add those together? Do they, and then for that uh, uh, conversation, we can go back to uh, our, our AC calculation uh, uh, segment we did a few months yes. back, which yeah. will help out a lot of those conversations. But yeah. good to clear it up again to be like, okay... Wild shape doesn't doesn't do both of those. Yeah, but the question is, is that wrapped up? That so, little so part? no. There's actually another one. One more part. Okay, yeah, I have a question because uh, it's it's actually multi-classing that introduces a lot of questions with wild shape um, mm-hmm. because also someone uh, might have a level or two in monk, and they then wonder, can I use my different abilities that rely on unarmed strikes? Right. Uh, can I use those while I'm in a beast form? Now, the answer is yes, but that's not as simple as that. There's always a but. Yeah, because often what people mean when they ask this question is, can I use the claw attack, for instance, uh, in, in this beast stat block and have that count as an unarmed strike? Mm-hmm. And the answer is no. So a beast can make an unarmed strike, but it, but none of its like claw attacks, bite attacks, horn attacks, none of those count as an unarmed strike. Uh, oh, okay. So an unarmed strike has its own definition. Yeah. Uh, in the player's handbook, we tell you an unarmed strike, whoever you are, whatever species you are, is simply you know you make you make this melee attack roll, and if you hit, you deal an amount of damage equal to one plus your strength modifier. That is sort of universal in the D&D multiverse. It doesn't matter what your species is. Your unarmed strike is one plus your strength modifier 
whatever part of your body that you're using. Although the assumption in the unarmed strike is that you're using a part of your body uh, that would not pierce or slash. You're, an unarmed strike is a part of your body that deals bludgeoning damage. Mm -hmm. unless, unless you happen to be playing a player character race, like a tabaxi or something, where you get, you get a special exception. Right. Uh, it's meant to, meant to mimic uh, punching, kicking. Punching, yeah, because an unarmed strike uh, isn't just your fists. It can be your feet, a knee. Um, a slam with your a head side, butt. a headbutt. Yeah, which is far more likely if you're, uh, you know, a creature um, or, you know, rearing up and sort of slamming into uh, somebody else. All of those could be imagined as unarmed strikes. So then why does claw and bite uh, not satisfy those? So... It, it's simply because they are already defined as their own thing in uh, the monster stat block. Mm. Uh, they, are, they are a defined action called claw, called bite. They're not called unarmed strike. They're, uh, unarmed strike is separately defined in the rules of it's its own thing. Um, so and if you were a creature that had those things, you could you know, bring your claws into your fists and start to attack, and then you could use it as an unarmed strike. But as soon as you had your claws out and you wanted to use those uh, uh, damage modifiers and rolls, um, that would not apply. Right, because you're, you're basically deciding uh, when you're a beast, just like you are when you're a humanoid, what are you using to make your attack? Are you, are you going to use the sword in your hand if you're a humanoid? Mm -hmm. Are you going to use the bow in your hand? Or are you instead going to use a fist? You're going to do a headbutt? And each of those things is defined separately. A sword attack in the game has a different definition than that unarmed strike that right. might be, you know, again, a, a bludgeoning attack with some part of your body. That rule doesn't change just because you've turned into a beast. It's now instead of, instead of deciding are you using a sword uh, or a bow or some other uh, manufactured weapon, you're deciding am I going to use one of these natural weapons uh, in my stat block or am I going to use this sort of softer part of my body option that every creature has in the multiverse? Got it. Um, it's a little bit like the non-stacking rule, too, where, like, you know, it, it's this attack is this divine and this is defined, and you can't conflate the two. Right, right. And it, it, that keeps things uh, clear. Um, but then what it also means is because really the, the outcome of this is almost no one is going to want to make an unarmed strike when they're in beast form. Mm -hmm. It it's usually only beneficial in the very the corner case of the multi-class monk druid who wants to use their martial arts feature, which uses unarmed strikes. And in their case, it can be advantageous because a monk's unarmed strikes get more and more powerful the more levels the monk has. And so it could be advantageous for you know, essentially there to be a kung fu panda. That, that <laughs> was the, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. And that's thinking. what, you know, people are always imagining. Or something with a, uh, some kind of animal with a, with a much higher strength modifier than the character has. Right. You know, so and, if you're turning into a gorilla or, or, or something like that, that would make a little bit more sense, even at lower levels. Yeah. And, and so the baseline is, yes, if you're a monk druid, you can use your martial arts in the animal form, but that doesn't mean you somehow get to conflate the animal's built-in natural weapons with your monk yeah. martial arts feature. Because the monk martial arts feature stands on its own. It tells you how it works. Yeah. You make an unarmed strike, and it the feature tells you the dice you roll for the damage and all of that. Uh, 
there's no there's no hyper complexity of now somehow you're going to merge these two things. No, you just if you want to use the claw attack, do what the claw attack says. If you want to use your martial arts ability, use what the martial arts ability says. Makes sense. Uh, don't don't make yourself crazy trying to combine these two uh, into some new style of attack. Uh, Got it. All right. Well, my final question uh, about this uh, wild shape is uh, magic items. Mm-hmm. How do they interact with uh, transforming into a creature uh, and then using the feature of a magic item, for example. So when you when you transform uh, into a beast shape, you decide whether your equipment drops to the ground, uh, or you decide if it, if it's anatomically possible if the beast continues to wear some of the equipment, or you decide it just merges into uh, your form and basically vanishes into you while you're in that beast form. Mm. So if it drops to the ground, obviously it's on the ground. You, you don't, you're not using it. Uh, if it merges into you, it's basically gone, and you don't have access to uh, that equipment while you're uh, in beast form. Oh, okay. Uh, you can't use any, like if there's a ring of invisibility that merges or, into you. No, yeah. If, if you take the merge option, just basically... It's, ma- it's you're just, storing it. You don't have to worry about carrying it, but you can't use any of the items. Right. Got it. The The one way where you might be able to still use the item is if you pick the other option, which is you continue to wear an item. Now here, as the rule says, it requires, again, some conversation with the DM of what's physically possible for this creature to be wearing. Uh, and if it's physically possible for the creature to be wearing it, uh, then go for it. Use the item. As long as, again, you're following the other rules, which is you aren't casting any spells and you uh, are, you know, abiding by the anatomical limitations of that particular beast's uh, anatomy. Mm. Um, so, again, it's a, it, it all depends on what did you turn into. Um, you know, like, let's just take magic rings. If you turned into a creature that has uh, a, a finger-like digit... Uh, that a ring could be on, as DM, I'd say, yeah, go for it. Uh, you can still benefit from that ring. Um, you mentioned casting spells, though. Is, is you know, a ring that specifically lets you uh, uh, cast a spell, such as like a ring of wishes or something like that, would not be able to be used in wild shape, but something like a ring of invisibility would? Or did that only count? Yeah, casting items, th- I mean, casting spells through a magic item are still prohibited. Right, because you can't, you just... You can't cast spells, period. So anything in the magic item description that says you can cast X, you can't that's do out. It. If it's an ongoing effect that is always Like on. if it says you get, you know, plus two to your armor class while you're wearing this thing and you and your DM determine that, uh, you know, the, the beast form you're in can wear it, mm-hmm. you, you benefit from that bonus. What about something like a sentient item? Uh, and how does that, do, would you still be able to speak to it if it's merged into you? Uh, well, again, your uh, beast form also can't speak. But so, it's a, a telepathic mental, right? Uh, if if a particular item uh, uh, has the ability to communicate telepathically, uh, then sure, it could it could telepathically communicate uh, with a druid in beast form, even if it's in the merged option. Oh, not if it's merged. If it's merged, it's like turned. Yeah, off. yeah. Again, the, Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah, too. if you do the merged, it's it's poof. It's basically like it's in its own little bag of holding. Yeah, it's like it went into accessed. a pocket dimension. and Ooh. Yeah. Now I'm like, <laughs> I and love it, that character idea of like, oh, right, shut up. I'm going to turn into a, 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 my, my bull and not listen to you anymore, <laughs> sentient item that I hate. So, and it's funny because there, there, there are certain things like this in D&D that 
you know, they've been around for years, this idea of like your equipment merging into something you transform into. And we get so used to it, we don't think much about it. But anytime I think about it, this is one of those things where like, this is really gross and kind of <laughs> <Yeah>. strange. <Right. laughs> like, uh, the, like the scimitar I was carrying, this big blade just merged into my body somewhere. Is it like <laughs> put in a sack? Like, a, you know, your body creates this like layer of anti-magic around yeah. it, which means it can't be used. Well, yeah. l- luckily we, we have the fig leaf of, again, this is, this is a, a, a work of magic that the druid is performing. Yeah. Um, if if we need to imagine that the items are going somewhere, uh, given that druids are not only connected to uh, the forces of nature, but also druids have a connection to uh, the various spirits and other creatures of the f- of fairy or otherwise known as the Feywild, mm-hmm. I guess we could imagine that the druid stuff that quote unquote merges is actually being shunted off somewhere into the Feywild, you know, maybe some protected glade where it all just sits there, and then it gets transported back. That's, <laughs> that's sort of nicer to imagine that it's somehow being stored somewhere right. in some, some, you know, uh, uh, some miniaturized form in my body. <laughs> now, if, that, if that's the explanation, too, now I want to be like a, 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 a rogue who busts into the Feywild to find the one place where to everybody's... To find the Druid Vault, <laughs> yes. Everybody's stuff goes, and be like, sorry... <laughs> Can't have it back anymore. And yeah, people we, merge out, and they're like, "What happened to my stuff?" Yeah. So, yeah, listeners, we, DMs, we just gave you a, a, a campaign idea, the revelation that all these druids, their stuff is actually going to a place, <laughs> and the bad guys figured out where it was. I love it. Yeah. All right. Any other <laughs> questions you think pop up about Wild Shape? I'm sure we'll get more. Uh, but uh, there, there are questions sometimes that come up having to do with how the hit points work, uh, because when you uh, transform into the creature as a part of using its stat block, you now use it its hit point total. Uh, and when we say its hit points or its hit point maximum, we're referring to the hit points printed in the stat block. Sometimes people get a little confused because on the hit point line, it will say like, you know, hit points, and then it might say 15. And then in parentheses, we give you uh, the hit dice for the creature, basically a way for the DM to give creatures a variable amount of hit points because mm. the, the the expression in parentheses is basically giving the DM the range of hit points possible for this creature, you know, down to, you know, the weakest version up to the, the most resilient version. The druid, though, just uses the number of hit points that's printed right there. The druid oh, okay. doesn't roll up hit points for the creature. It's, you know, if it says 15, that is that creature's hit point maximum uh, while the druid is that creature. That's good. Um, you don't have to worry about re-rolling it every single time. No. You switch yeah. into wild shape or yeah. there being some variance there. Like it's and, always going to be that printed number. And sometimes and, you know, and there are rules in the game that will refer to a character's hit point maximum. And so then people wonder, well, what is my hit point maximum when I'm in beast form? Your hit point maximum is the that hit point number printed in the stat block. Whether it's not it's, the highest resilient, no. most best uh, yeah. Um, creature. Yeah, because the the expression in parentheses is the range of possibilities for all creatures of that type. It is not the range in the of... wild. Yes, not, not the range of possibilities for a particular uh, version of that beast. So, you know, all bears have that range of hit point uh, possibilities, mm-hmm. but this particular bear... He just has one hit point maximum, he or she. Got it. Um, that makes sense. And you know, and then you know, as soon as those hit points run out, you get knocked out of the beast form. And then if there's any uh, carryover damage, let's say you had only five hit points left while you're in your 
Uh, we'll pretend you're a deer. You have only five hit points left. Someone hits you for 15 points of damage. Well, the deer form takes five of those hit points, gets zeroed out. You get knocked out of deer form. Mm-hmm. But there's 10 hit points of damage left over. Well, now your humanoid form uh, takes uh, the 10 remaining points of damage. So uh, it's not like... Uh, any leftover damage is lost. No, all leftover damage carries over. Um, and so that you can't game the system and be like, I'm going to turn into a, uh, um, you know, something that has like one or two hit points to absorb a huge hit from a big monster. <laughs> right. To be like, oh, the worst that can happen, I'll get knocked into humanoid form. Well, no, you actually no, yeah, take all that, all that damage. Exactly. The, all that damage is going to, the, the remainder damage is going to carry over. Um, and particularly dangerous uh for you know druids flying around as like little, little Tweety bird, uh, that might be great to be scouting. But many of those birds have, don't have many hit points. <laughs> so if you get, if you you know take a big hit or even sometimes a small hit, and you get zeroed out and knocked out of that bird form, well, if you're high up in the air, you're now also going to probably be taking falling damage. Yeah. Um, uh, so sometimes uh, fans wonder, uh, you know, wow, is it is the druid overpowered because of getting essentially a supplementary hit point pool uh, when they transform uh, into a beast form. Uh, This extra resilience is absolutely by design. Uh, The druid is meant to have this extra little bump of resilience, um, whether it's because they're you know, scouting or, or what have you, or because they have turned into a beast form to engage in battle. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, this is why the you can't cast spells balancing factor is so important. Uh, because again, we didn't want to give you not only a, an extra pool of hit points and whatever other abilities the creature has, and you still have access to all of your spells. Then we would definitely be wandering into the realm of uh, well, this is a little too much. Now, yeah. that said, we're happy to provide druids the ability to cast spells at much higher levels because by then we expect all D&D characters to be kind of bonkazonks in a good way. You yeah. know, where at that point, uh, you know, the characters are meant to be um, outstandingly powerful. Well, at 18th level, I mean, you're, yeah. very, you're approaching, you're, you know, you're approaching the end. Yeah, yes. right. Exactly. Like level. That makes sense. So one thing that I, I feel like this is, we're going to, we could talk about this forever, but the last question that you were just answering was about hit points and, and how that works. How do temporary hit points work with, the, uh, uh, wild shape? So if, uh, as I mentioned before, let's say, um, a spell effect, is put upon you before you transform. Well, it keeps affecting you after you transform. And this includes if an effect gives you temporary hit points before you turn into the beast, well, you still have those temporary hit points. And and if someone gives you more temporary hit points while you're in beast form, the temporary hit points still have to follow the regular rules for temporary hit points. See our segment on temporary hit yes, points. Yeah, you're, exactly. You're confused there, but yeah. okay. So that there's no special interactions between those two. No, no. Okay, good. Because, yeah, again, the important thing to remember is you're still you. <laughs> Even though you're now using a different stat block, it's not like you're two separate creatures. Mm. Um, I, I think one reason why sometimes people start almost imagining the druid is like, I'm now two people because, you know, I'm my wolf person and I'm my humanoid person. Mm is because of the the two hit point pool uh, thing. Uh, but other than that, in all ways, you, you're still you. Uh, you're still the same target who was targeted before. Asterisk, <laughs> however, your creature type just changed. And so 
uh, suddenly you might be targetable when you turn into a beast form by effects that couldn't target you when you were a humanoid. Oh, okay. For example, you know, a, a foe might have an ability that can charm beasts. Well, that wouldn't normally work on you when you're in your human or elf or dwarf form or whatever your, your character's race is. Yeah. Well, now suddenly it works on you uh, because you are uh, in this beast form. Some of those can be very powerful yeah. uh, as well to yeah. control. So. But one way to then free yourself of such a thing, if you're able to, you know, assuming, assuming the ability doesn't deprive you of your ability to take actions, uh, is, well, get out of that beast form. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's basically make yourself so you're no longer a valid target for that effect. Uh, now you're a humanoid, so poof, that thing doesn't work on you anymore. Um, so it... The, there are some interesting uh, narrative possibilities that arise because of uh, the druid uh, train- changing themselves so dramatically. Mm-hmm. I mean, because really, this isn't this isn't a realm of the game that other characters usually face until uh, the polymorph yeah. spell comes into play. But the, you know, this is something druids are are dealing with right at second level. I mean, and this is a big reason why people who play druids often like to play them. Right, um, it's, it's like almost a, a little subset of the rules that many characters don't really interact with. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's why I think a lot of people think they might be overpowered in some ways because like, whoa, I don't even know how to deal with this. But I think just in the course of this conversation, we've given DMs a lot of tools in order to deal with a druid character that may feel like they're uh, uh, overtaking the combat or something like that. I think, you know, and, and beast, f- beast control spells is one way, <laughs> knocking yes. them out, that yeah. kind of thing. Well, and also the other thing to remember is most of the beasts in the game that a druid can transform into over time are going to have a lower armor class than a comparable humanoid uh, because... Humanoids, both because of manufactured armor and other abilities, will uh, over time get very high armor classes. And so while you might have this extra hit point pool when you turn into a beast, you're often easier to hit mm. as a beast than you were uh, as a humanoid. Uh, in, my, in my previous D&D campaign at home, one of the characters was a druid, and specifically a Circle of the Moon druid, uh, and so that druid spent a lot of time in animal form in combat. And, oh, boy, did that druid get hit a lot. Uh, <laughs> and there was no sense in our group that the, the druid was in any way overpowered uh, because, uh, man. Took did, a lot, of, took a lot did, of beating. Oh, yes. Yeah, that character, she took, she took quite a beating. <laughs> 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 but she could take it because wow. she, was, she was this f- fantastic uh uh, fiery druid. I love that, and I love too that they can become kind of like the the, the tank of the group. Yes, uh, uh, for exactly. That reason, right? and, Which is it, kind of interesting, and that's intentional. I love it. All right, well, thank you so much. We've talked a long time. <laughs> Just looked at the clock, and this is going on forty minutes. Here, wow! So. And and what's funny is I can actually think of a variety of things that we could still talk about exactly. related to wild shapes. So thank you so much uh, for uh, for going over that, Jeremy. Um, and thank you f- to uh, Josh DV for that question. Obviously, you opened up a, a, a Pandora's box of, of rules, <laughs> questions, and, and musings. All so sorts of little forest critters flew out of that box. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, Jeremy, how can people get in touch with you to ask you more questions uh, about D and D rules? I can be reached on Twitter. Uh, my handle there is Jeremy E. Crawford. Awesome. So go ahead and uh, fire any questions his way. He likes to uh, talk about it on Twitter. And then some good ones, we might uh, do some more segments here. Yes. Yep. All right. Thank you very much. Bye, everyone.
it is always great to talk to Jeremy. Um, as, as he says, uh, when right before we recorded that, he's like, you know, we're known to gab, so we're going to have a, a, a long conversation, and it was. It was like, I think this was the 46-minute long nice. uh, segment, so. What did you guys talk about on this one that people probably just listened to? Uh, it was Wild Shape. Oh, wow. If I yeah, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. A lot so. of bits and bobs, yeah. uh, lots of things. So uh, I apologize if this is a super long episode, but you know, you guys like long content, right? So yeah. here it is. Listen to it in pieces. It's okay. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to listen to it all at once. We're not going to be mad at you. <laughs> Well, Tito might. I'm going to be so mad. Yeah. I'm looking at me. Look at this in my mad face. Ryan's definitely being like, I did all this work. You better listen to it all at once. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's get uh, uh, Philip and Chris on the phone, and we'll talk Planescape Torment Enhanced yes. Edition. With, without spoilers. But if you haven't played it. Hello. 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 Welcome, you guys. Great to, great to have you on again. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks, guys. So we have uh, uh, Chris Avalon. That was the last person you heard, correct? Uh, that is correct. It was the last person and now the first person. Oh, nice. wow. Uh, and Philip Daigle from Beamdog. Hello. Hello. So we're here to talk to uh, you guys about uh, Planescape Torment Enhanced Edition. Yes. You, uh, excited. You had a fun countdown uh, that got people very excited. In fact, some of them were even being like, oh, is that going to be a, uh, uh, a tabletop product? But we're like, no, it's the best uh, uh, video game story ever told. So I don't, I don't think anybody was really disappointed. Yeah, we were, uh, we were about as subtle as a stack of oranges to the dome. <laughs> so, uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun, though. Like, we weren't trying to be subtle. We were just sort of, you know, playing around. Because in the past, we have, we've done countdowns before for Baldur's Gate, Ice and Bale, et cetera. So mm-hmm. we made up a little story that, oh, hey, we, uh, we have a travel website coming called Plan Escape, which is, of course, Planescape. Mm-hmm. And uh, we teased people all weekend. And at the end, we announced, hey, Planescape Tour and Enhanced Edition is coming. That's awesome. Uh, so, uh, what was it like, uh, Chris, going back and, you know, delving through the old files that you wrote? Uh, it was 1999 when the original came out. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, actually, it was a pretty embarrassing experience. Oh, uh, no. yeah, uh, I didn't realize exactly how many words I could misspell until <laughs> I went through a proper editing process. But it it was a real pleasure to actually be able to go back and address a lot of those errors that you know shame me to this day so I'm, I'm thankful for the enhanced edition for that and they just it was just the spelling you corrected right nothing else <laughs> no the, the 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 core story uh there was a lot of uh scripting and plot holes we fixed uh but we didn't actually change the core story uh beam dog was very very respectful about sort of keeping it very true to the original and not messing with it in any way shape or form the the major overhauls and i guess phil can speak to this the best is um Largely, the the UI is a lot friendlier mm. for for modern systems, mm-hmm. and, and Planescape originally was not as friendly. Gotcha. So no no George Lucasing the script for the, for this Planescape. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. You won't find a Jar Jar Banks companion or. No. In in one of the FMVs, there is a dooback that crosses the scene. <laughs> It's actually part of the original designer's intent. We, so. we did discuss that because we were going to add a Jawa getting thrown around too. Yeah. But oh, we were like, man. no, well, you know what? That would be going too far. So the, the Lady you know, of Pain changes the do back. At the end, the Lady of Pain just, no! <laughs> we got James Earl Jones to voice the Lady of Pain. <laughs> <laughs> that would be pretty brilliant, actually. <laughs> I'd be behind that. So for people who may not know uh, uh, about Planescape Torment, uh, why, why don't you give, um, you know, a lot of our listeners, you know, some of them may even be, have been born after 1999, which is crazy to think about. Um, what is, uh, yeah, what, what was the quick version of what, what this story was and, and why people should get into it? 
Well, it was based on uh, Wizards of the Coast slash TSR's uh, campaign setting for Dungeons and Dragons. It was a setting called Planescape, which actually encompassed all the campaign settings they had at the time. And then they added this idea of sort of plane walking and the idea that in Planescape, whatever enough people believe, uh, they can make into a reality. Mm -hmm. So essentially, you have all these philosophers running around fighting over mental real estate. And in terms of how that gets translated to a role-playing game, you wake up from the dead. The whole the whole conceit of the game was, hey, this is a game. This game happens after the death screen, and you can't die in the game. What happens is you've been living all these lives over God knows how many thousands of years, and every time you get killed, uh, you wake back up from the dead, but you lose your memory. So it becomes sort of this sort of very selfish mystery to figure out how you got to this state and how you fix the very, very large problem involved with it. And when you say selfish mystery, it actually is the mystery of self. Like, who, who is this person? Who is this character? Yeah, there is that. And then also, uh, I, I will say, while going back to the enhanced edition, like almost everything and everybody you talk to factors back into your story in some way. So it creates a pretty interesting experience gameplay loop where players routinely get rewarded with more information about their background and more power just by exploring almost every part of the environment. So in that sense, it's also very selfish and I, I make no apologies about that. I just think it makes it more fun. Yeah, no, I remember some of the greatest things about the game for me trying to be spoiler free is going through and like talking to people or doing something and like, Oh look, you learned this ability just from having that conversation. Like you remembered you could do this thing or you got stronger. Like it seemed like I would make a choice about who I was and then I would, sometimes get a stat like or, or, or a thing from that and that was really awesome so I'm looking forward to playing this again it's like it's all like this hazy awesome nostalgia in my head mm. so now I just want to sit down and be like yeah it's one more time so. did you play it back when it came out I don't think I played it when I came when it came out it had already been out for a little bit mm -hmm. uh, but I did play it and I played it what I would say all the way through uh, it's, it's a, it was a it was a brilliant game I'm sure it still is a brilliant game uh, there wasn't a game at that time that made me feel as much connected to the story as that one did so uh, huge fan. Yeah, I was really worried I was going to get fired over that game. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, aside from the localization costs, uh, there was this feeling from Quality Assurance that it was a very quote unquote unusual game. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of something you don't really want to hear from QA. What you want to hear is like, wow, it's a solid product. People have a lot of fun with it. But they were always really wary when they were getting yeah. us critiques. And I'm like, oh, great, there goes my career. <laughs> Yeah, and then uh, and then it came out, and then people seemed to really enjoy it. So we were always really thankful about that. Now, when you, when you mentioned getting fired over, it, wasn't there? Uh, now I'm trying to remember our old conversation a little bit, but wasn't weren't you kind of siloed alone a little bit to when you when you were writing this? Yeah, um, I was allowed to write the story uh, for I think about a year before the game actually entered full production. Uh, although, admittedly, during that time, I was, I was also doing double time on Fallout 2. So my, my work schedule was like 160 hours a week or something. It was crazy. Wow. Uh, but I was able to do a first pass to all the dialogues and the story. And um, the leads and uh, Colin McComb, the other writer, came in uh, at, at intervals during that period. We just started building up from there. So I feel like there was a proper amount of time spent for pre-planning. And then also we had the advantage they were using Bioware's Infinity Engine, which sort of, what we all, most of what we had to worry about was content. And the engine yeah, itself right. worked quite well for what we were trying to do, and that helped things considerably. 
And Philip, you I mean you guys worked on uh, enhancing this this uh, this game. Enhance. 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 <laughs> I mean leading directly off of uh the Infinity Engine stuff. I mean, so Planescape uh, actually forked the Infinity Engine before Baldur's Gate actually shipped. Oh. So they had started before uh, BioWare had even implemented, say, like a magic system. And so uh, when they took uh, the Infinity Engine to do Planescape, they had to completely implement their own uh, frameworks for a few key systems, including magic. And so when we showed up, we thought, hey, you know, uh, these these engines are pretty close together. It should be pretty straightforward process porting the data from one game into the other version of the engine. And uh, we discovered that was not in fact the case. It was a much, much more involved process than we were expecting. We had to completely rebuild the spell subsystems. Uh, there was a lot of stuff in the game that was markedly different from the Baldur's Gate version of the Infinity Engine. And so in the end, we kind of realized that uh, they were more cousins than say perhaps direct siblings. Mm. <laughs> And I don't want to overstate the differences. I mean, it's still the Infinity Engine, and and we still, you know, knew exactly what to do. But the volume of difference was very surprising to us, especially because Planescape had these, you know, amazing, very cinematic, almost JRPG spells, and uh, seeing how they implemented that was just really interesting. Yeah, the process for that, uh, we actually had a dedicated spell designer, a spell programmer, and a spell artist, in addition to cinematic support for it. And uh, the, brain, the brainchild for that was uh, one of our producers, uh, Ken Lee. He had just gotten off of Final Fantasy VII, and he <laughs> oh, wow. said that Planescape was going to be the game that had the most earth-shattering PC versions. <laughs> and we were like, oh, my God, these things are insane. Well, there's a Modron cannon? Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> drop meteorites to the plane like i was like oh my god but it it, it it all came together and i was pretty impressed and the the team did a really good job with it yeah that's one of the more memorable features of planescape is just the insane spells the mechanic can or the mechanist cannon in general is probably the most impressive looking spell from that era of rpgs <laughs> just a giant gun shoots you in the face through a portal that's just cool can't, can't go wrong with that that is yeah. pretty cool uh, so here's here's where I admit that I, I've actually never played Planescape Torment. Uh, I don't know why. It was always one of those things that I was like, oh, I'll get to this eventually. I played through you know many of the Baldur's Gate things, but uh, Planescape just never. I think it was because in 1999 I was playing uh, uh, Alpha Centauri uh, like crazy. Oh, oh that's, 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 well, that's, that's 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 a worthy uh, reason. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, but it's, it's been one of those games that has been talked about uh, so much. Like, it, it was impossible to get away from. Uh, I, I, when I was on the game journalist side, it was always the thing that was touted as, as one of the pinnacles of, of, of game writing, uh, in a way. And, or at least, you know, if you, if you were a student of game writing, you should know it. Uh, you, should, you should play it. In fact, even on Twitter, I think someone uh, uh, did something recently and said that. And, I, and I, that's where I was like, oh, I sheepishly admit I haven't played <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, Chris, what does it feel like? It had been, you know, touted uh, as uh, a, a pinnacle of game writing in a way. Um, and what's that? What's that feel like from from you know your, your career going forward? Like, what, what does it feel like having that on your resume? Having all these articles about uh, uh, you know, if you're a student of game writing, that you uh, that you probably should play Planescape Torment at, at some point. Well, um, I I do appreciate that uh, it, it it does it does uh, garner that praise. I will say I have talked to, to students, notably my girlfriend, who had to write a thesis on it before she <laughs> met me, and she was pretty upset at me. 
<laughs> she's like, wow, your game was so long. Like it's like, you know, there was all the all the reactivity and looping. I'm like, well, you know, that's just that's just what it was. The um, and I'm also sorry you had to write a thesis paper on it. <laughs> um, but for for me, it was never like I. I certainly am happy that people that, that like narrative and stories appreciate it. For me, it was mostly a labor of, I, I, I played a lot of computer RPGs and it just seemed like the same things kept getting done again and again. And then Planescape came along and it was a license that's like, hey, we're gonna take a step back from traditional fantasy and just try and explore some new ideas. And then suddenly that opened the door to, well, if I didn't have to do high fantasy, I'd have to do you know, classical RPG gameplay, like what sort of fun things could you play around with? Like, could, you know, could you start the game out the death screen? Like, you know, could you remove elves and dwarves and keep swords to a minimum and, you know, rats are the most dangerous things. And then the TSR and Watsi guys, they, they, they'd already made this great campaign setting where, mm. you know what, it's okay to break the rules and just tell a really, you know, cool narrative. And that's what Planescape was. Yeah. I mean, I, I said it before. It's it's the game seems like the precursor to like all the all like kind of the modern choice RPGs, like you know Mass Effects and and things like that for me. So it's 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 as young Trevor playing it, I was blown away. Like oh my god, look at these things I can do. I think there was one playthrough where, where I think this is true because I played through it like three or four times. Uh, again, it's been so long. I'm pretty sure I didn't kill anybody, or if I did, it was like very r rare and random, which is not normal for any kind of like RPG. So right. I was like, that was pretty awesome. I'm like, I'm gonna play a pacifist guy, and pretty much I could do it. Uh, so, uh, the, the, like the the amount of choice again that a player had playing that game, and the story revolved around those choices, like your choices mattered, was was pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah you know, a, a lot of the design principles for that is, is something that I wanted to keep going throughout my career. The uh, I, I really do like the the speech based sort of pacifist path, pacifist pacifist path. Maybe because I just grew up on so much Doctor Who, and Doctor Who was very much about not not killing people, mm -hmm. and he was cooler for it. I'm yeah, like, yeah. this guy is just smarter than everyone else, and he knows the right things to say. Like, you know, as things went on, like with more recent RPGs, like uh, one of the most frustrating things was we'd, we'd get mandates where, well, you have to fight in this game, or like there are no speech paths anymore. We're just going to have, you know, it's, it's going to be core combat solutions that. I kind of broke my heart a little bit because that that was part of the love that I had for these older games was you could pursue alternate paths that made you feel clever without hurting anybody. And yep. that, that was a big plus for me. Yeah. And then that kind of, so Planescape really uh, established a lot of those standards in the CRPG field. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and it's kind of the inspiration for a lot of things that came after. Like Planescape was one of the first games that supported the idea of factions that you could join and get involved in. And now you look at a modern RPG, um, you know, every single one has factions that you can join. You look at Skyrim, you look at Dragon Age. Um, it's just, it's a really common trope now because it was so successful in Planescape. And so, at Beamdog, when we're looking into doing new RPGs, we're looking more at like Planescape, Fallout, those kinds of games that have the uh, the pacifist paths that we've been talking about. Because our stance is kind of like a role-playing game does not mean that you are playing the role of a murderer. Right. <laughs> playing the role of a person, and yep. some people don't murder their way through things. Yep. And, you know, there's there's obviously reasons why a lot of games will emphasize combat over, you know, conversation here and there. But uh, our stance is very much old school RPG, you know, always give the players an option to do something different. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, always a huge fan of that. 
Speaking more from the, the Daigle side over here, uh, I, I know we talked about you know the the enhanced edition part of this, but what what have you guys done uh, for Planescape Torment when you bring in this enhanced edition? So uh, we've done quite a bit this time around. Uh, we focused really really heavily on the user interface of the game. Um, so the original Planescape Torment was built for uh, 640 by 480 resolutions, which is uh, if you know anything about resolutions, it's basically a postage stamp. And so <laughs> when you blow it up to you know HD, the interface just did not hold up. And there were also a lot of uh, '90s isms in the interface that I think at the time people were were experimenting a lot more with what they thought interfaces could or should be like. And it wasn't until you know the early 2000s that everything shook out and people were like, okay don't have a pop-up appear when you right-click in the game world because that's really confusing. <laughs> so we, uh, we've completely rebuilt the entire user interface at 4K, and we also changed the way that it works, so it's a little bit more like Baldur's Gate or Icewind Dale. You control your characters from a bottom bar, and then uh, the original game, you would have to like right-click in the game world, and this radial menu would appear, and then you would have to puzzle your way through it. So we've simplified that quite a bit. Outside of the user interface, uh, we've applied pretty much all of our common enhanced edition upgrades. So like you can zoom in and out. Uh, we've remastered the soundtrack. Those are sorts of new graphical options to make the game easier to see and play. But at the same time, um, we've kind of learned a lot of lessons from our earlier enhanced editions. So now when you start Planescape Tournament Enhanced Edition for the first time, it presents you with an option saying, hey, do you want to play this with all of the enhanced features, so all of the graphical upgrades, et cetera, or would you prefer to play as close to the original as possible, which turns off everything and makes it look very much like the original game. So if you're a purist, you've got what you want, but if you want all of those modern convenience features, then they're waiting right there for you. Uh, the other major thing that we've done is that we've ported the game to tablets, so for the first time ever, Planescape Torment is available on iPad and Android and phones as well, I believe. And we have an entirely new tablet interface, which is completely separate from the desktop version. It's designed for you know mainly thumb use. It's it's pretty nice. That's cool. You mentioned four yeah. K. Of course, there's, uh, Chris's editorial pass. There's thousands upon thousands of bug fixes, and the game is infinitely easier to mod now because we've ported it to our version of the Infinity Engine, which is just much much nicer for modders to work with. Oh, that's cool. So overall, it's just it's the best possible version of the original game that you love, polished to an incredibly high shine. And you meant you mentioned 4K, right? Like, so have you been playing it at that at that high of a resolution? It is shockingly gorgeous at 4K. Wow. And for a time, I was arguing that we should include a 4K monitor with copies of the game. <laughs> I was eventually shouted down in the discussion meetings. <laughs> that might that might increase the the price of the game a little bit. So, well, you know, a tidge, a little bit. <laughs> but I think people would have would have been uh, very accommodating to it. I need I need an excuse to get a 4K television. I got a 4K monitor already. So now it's I just perfect. need a, a 4K tablet too. Oh man, yeah. <clears throat> one day, one one day. Yeah, so one, day. Uh, one of the things we didn't talk about, <clears throat> and rightfully so, I think, right, is that like there's. There's no new content in there because people are, are used to possibly used to from the enhanced editions for Baldur's Gate expecting new mm -hmm. content, but we don't. There's no new content in this, correct? Yeah. So in the uh, previous enhanced editions, we added new content because people were kind of asking for expanded content because they wanted to see new things. And we sat down and did an analysis of Planescape with Chris. It was pretty evident that the story of the Nameless One is complete. 
And there weren't really a lot of opportunities to inject more characters or more adventures. Like it was a very self-contained, complete story. Mm. And so we decided that the best way to curate this game would be rather than adding new content is just polish up what's there as best as possible. So we've uh, taken a very uh, museum curator role for the enhanced edition of Planescape. Yeah, the fixes are things that we would have wanted to fix. Uh, back at Black Isle, or had we been aware of them, we would have wanted to fix. That the uh, the core story is pretty much intact. And you know, what Phil says, they, what I appreciate about working with Beamdog is they were very respectful um, to the franchise. And like, you know what, we just want to make sure that that same narrative is being delivered. And we just try and want to fix whatever problems there that may have been there legacy-wise with the title, which was very, very respectful. Nice. I love the museum curator idea. Like, know. Uh, you know, a lot of, <laughs> you know, there's been a lot of talk about uh, when video games are around past the console that they're on or past the, you know, the, the operating system that they were on, what happens to them. Uh, and, you know, here you guys are actually taking something that uh, probably wouldn't run on modern machines uh, if you were to put uh, the 1999 version of Planescape Torment into your, into your computer now. It wouldn't even, you know do anything probably uh so here you guys are like taking that back and, and letting people you know uh, 17 18 years later uh you know go go back to that museum and check it out yeah i know that you could you could pick up planescape on gog for a while you probably still can i think they actually had a discount where if you bought it then uh the enhanced edition you might be able to get some kind of discount on it so if you have it on gog go, go check that out right right but yes uh, so the, uh the, the thing with uh, the the old version of planescape is that you're right. I mean, the out of the box, it did not function well, if at all. And with mods, you know, you could hammer it into a reasonable shape that wasn't that painful to use, but it was still an uphill battle. So a big driver for the enhanced edition is just removing that step entirely and going much, much further than what you could do with mods. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to playing. I, it's seriously like, this is one of like my formative games. It's, it's Zelda... This and tabletop D and D, I think, were probably my, my, my most formative uh, type things. So, um, I know there's a whole bunch of I will call us grognards uh, who have the <laughs> same kind of feeling, like oh, I can't wait to play again. So, uh, super excited. I probably will not play it on my tablet just because I want the the full screen uh, thing. But the fact that you can travel and play, I did a, I did a Baldur's Gate Baldur's Gate two. I was playing around on the, the plane recently. I was like, oh, this is nice. I actually get to take this wherever I want. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. But for Planescape, I'm just going to sit down on my computer and play and be like, oh, I remember this. I'm, I'm going to kill this guy this time. See what I, think, uh, I think there's a lot of people in your position or people who over the past you know, 17 years have heard that Planescape is this amazing game. It's so great. It's so awesome. But they never had the opportunity to play it because perhaps you know the, the game was really old. It didn't run that well. Or they just didn't want to play such an old game when they had a backlog of new great games to play. So this is kind of a great opportunity for all these people who heard about Planescape but never got a chance to play it to finally come in and see what all the fuss is about. Yeah. And I like the idea, too. I mean, you mentioned this this way early on that uh, the idea of, of Planescape is the glue between the D&D multiverse, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, that there is this in-between area uh, between Dragonlance and, and, and Greyhawk and, and Forgotten Realms and, and, you know, everybody's homebrew campaign. Um, they have to go through through Planescape. So anybody who's interested in that kind of meta idea, um, that's super interesting too, and something that, that people should should jump into for that reason. Yeah, Planescape's yeah, a really cool setting, and it's it's crazy that you can meet the actual gods of Greek mythology alongside like <laughs> Lathander from the Forgotten Realms. 
Yeah, that was also like back in the day for the tabletop, right? Picking up the the deities uh, and demigods. Demigods welcome be like, I can put some. I can put Thor next to Bahamut, and it's fine. It's totally fine. All this is fine. <laughs> uh, and, and like having that same feel in Planescape, it was it it blew me away. It's a totally different D and D experience. It's it's very singular. You're not really worried about the party or anything like that, right? You're on your personal journey, like you're talking about. Right. And like all these things that you know about D and D are just thrown out the window because you're in this city. That's in the middle of everything, basically. It's 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 sigil is, is the center of, of everything as far as I, as I felt like because it is the hub of all these spokes that are going out everywhere. So uh, I'm super excited for us old school fans to get to play it. I'm very interested to see what people like that if they approach it as maybe their first D and D experience. Right. To see to see what they think of it as well. So uh, all, all sorts of cool conversations about the about to start happening. Yeah, is there uh, is there any other uh, facets of the of the game that you wanted to make sure people were were aware of? When when is it when does it come out? Uh, so, Planescape Torment Enhanced Edition comes out on April 11th, and it's going to be available for 19.99 on Windows, Mac, and Linux. Believe it or not, nice. Uh, all all five of those guys are going to be really excited. Oh. <laughs> and uh, and then at the same time, we're going to be releasing on iPad and Android. Um, as well, it'll be in the Mac App Store, so you can pick it up there if you prefer. On PC, it'll be uh, available on Steam, Beamdog, and GOG. And, uh, of course, you can pick it up in the App Store and Google Play on, on tablets. And on tablet, it's going to be $9.99. Um, the tablet experience is a little smaller. You don't get to use your keyboard and mouse, so there's a bit of a price difference there. But it's the same game, all the same great content. And... Uh, the desktop version has cloud saves as well on Steam, so that's an exciting feature if you like to play at home and at work. Nice. Um, so you go to Planescape.com, you can see everything about uh, the Enhanced Edition, you can see all of our cool screenshots, and uh, come check out our great new interface. Yeah, and uh, you guys are doing a live stream today, Monday, but this is going to air on Thursday, yes. so they can go down and hunt, hunt down your live stream and see more about the Q&A and just uh, gameplay as well. So by the time you hear this, uh, there will be a live stream on uh, Twitch and on YouTube. It's two hours long today. Chris and I are going to be playing uh, Planescape Terminal Enhanced Edition, giving away prizes, and uh, talking about the game. Sweet. Exciting. You're going to miss out on the prizes, but still. Watch You're going to miss out on the prizes. Just get a hold of uh, a Daigle on Twitter and be like, listen, I want some prizes. Yeah, so if you successfully threaten me to the point where I feel scared, I will give you a, a treasure of some sort. <laughs> I don't know if you want to put that on the air, man. I know, that's when it's going to happen now. What are you doing? Someone's just, someone's just going to tweet you your address. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's all it takes. This is a security check. I'll, I'll now know what to you know, protect. There we go. They're the red team. That's awesome. Uh, so, uh, yeah, go to planescape.com to find out more. Yeah, planescape.com. <laughs> oh, before, <laughs> book, before book your travel. We have, to, we have to tell the story of uh, the Planescape. Yeah. Thing. So, uh, Trent, uh, the owner of Beamdog, he likes to buy domain names well ahead of when we will need them. So he was fishing around for uh, planescape.com back in, like, 2013 or something. And a dude owned it and was willing to sell it. But Trent was being a little sneaky, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to start a travel website called uh, planescape.com. <laughs> so the guy would give it up without realizing that it is, in fact, Planescape, the coolest dang campaign site. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the guy's going to hear it hear it on here, and he's going to be like, oh, oh we got to find you. He's going to be furious. There was an entire episode of Silicon Valley about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so did, did the gentleman know about uh, Planescape at all? Or was he just uh, squatting no, on it? 
did, but I think Trent was just playing it safe because, you know, it only takes one Google search to realize what you're sitting on. Yeah. <laughs> right. You'd but, be like, oh, this is a very popular trademark thing. I yeah. should make sure and so make it So I think it's there. a funny story. If it paints Trent as a charlatan, well, I'm sorry. Even but. Even better. <laughs> <laughs> No, he's an excellent guy. He would never do anything bad or horrible. That's not a charlatan. That's like a, you know, a shrewd businessman. Yeah, he's there the face. Go. He's the face man. There we go. True. He's nice. a really buff face man who likes to talk about his car. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks you guys uh, for coming on uh, and uh, uh, talking about Planescape Torment Enhanced Edition. I'm excited for when it comes out on April 11th. I think I'm going to jump in. Yep, and then yeah. everybody can go to Planescape.com to learn more and and see where you can buy it as well. Where can people find out about you guys? Uh, are you on, on the Twitters? Yes, uh, I am Daigle Doppel on Twitter. <laughs> Sorry, I just love that Twitter. Uh, yeah, <laughs> my, mine, imaginatively enough, is just uh, just Chris Avalon. That's good. Yeah. How are they so, ever going to find you? Yeah. <laughs> the, the Philip Daigle that you will find on there is some DJ in Louisiana, and one day I'm going <laughs> to fight him. going to fight him for his Twitter name. Match. That's awesome. <laughs> well, sweet. Good luck with the uh, Twitch stream, which people will be able to see now on, on Thursday as well. You can go back and watch the archive. And thanks for joining us, guys. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Talk to you soon. Talk to you guys later. Bye. Yeah. Um. <laughs> okay. So how are you feeling there, Tito, after after all that interviewing and awesomeness? That was some good interviewing, I think. Yeah. yeah. We some, got some stories out there. I'm like at about 70% uh, energy-wise. Yeah, you're, you're lying. You're like 30%. I know, right? I, it, that, was, that was very nice of you. you Strike that. Reverse you, it. You actually look you actually look fine, but like you're staring at that coffee like it's your lover. I know. So. I'm like, oh, God, please give me the sweet elixir <laughs> of energy. Uh, but yeah, no, it was good to, uh, getting to talk to them about, uh, all the things that are happening and I'm totally that guy who has not played. So I'm now I'm excited and I'll have that, uh, that opportunity. Yeah. I'm going to go back and play it like it's the first time and it'll be, it'll be awesome. It was, a, it was also the first time like meeting a tiefling, by the way. I feel like that's a song. Like, for the first time. First time. <laughs> like I'm really, there was a tiefling, there's a tiefling in uh, yeah, there's a tiefling. She plays a, she plays critical roles. No way. Uh, not the, she's not in the critical role. Awesome stream. Unless right. they want to have her in it. That could be cool. I guess. But she uh, plays a critical role. Yeah, she's in, pretty awesome in uh, Planescape Torment. I nice. was like, "Whoa, Tiefling!" That was that was my moment of like, "What is that?" Right. Uh, so pretty early on. Neat. Yep, yeah, yep. ninety nine. That, that was like before you know they were in the forefront. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exciting. Cool, man. Uh, so uh, again, Tales from the Awning Portal is out now in stores. Um, go check it out for bite-sized uh, nostalgia through D and D's past um, and. Uh, Playscape Tournament Enhanced Edition is out April 11th. So yeah. go check that out too. It'll be awesome and you'll enjoy it. If you don't, I don't want to hear your complaints. No, seriously. Uh, if you do want to tell us stuff, uh, either about podcast content or just uh, a comment about something we talked about or things we should we should do in the future, uh, you can reach me at uh, the underscore Trevor underscore kid on Twitter and you can reach Tito at Greg, Greg Tito. Tito. Yeah, me and Chris Avalon, the same, same thing. thing. Got to have just your name on there. And then, of course, we have our main Wizards Twitter account, which is at Wizards underscore D&D. Right. And you can find out all about these uh, fun products and more at DungeonsandDragons.com. DungeonsandDragons.com. And yeah, uh, as always, uh, when you're listening to the podcast, wherever you're listening to it, please comment, uh, like, share, all those things, just so we can, yeah. we know what people want and other people can, can see this cool stuff. It helps out a lot. 
getting other stuff out there. Leave and a review and rating on the on the iTunes. That yeah. always helps to kind of surface that a little bit more. Talk about how much cooler I am than Shelly. <laughs> I'd appreciate that. Se- secretly, I think Shelly's way better than me. Hashtag not Shelly. <laughs> Hashtag not Shelly. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, definitely just tell us what you want to see. Tell us what you thought. We, we love all that stuff. Awesome. Thanks, you guys. And uh, we'll see you next week. When, when Tito's not dying. When I'm not dying. I will, I will be dead. And we'll start Planescape Torment with the death screen. Hey! Ah.